Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bully. gospel reading this morning is from the gospel of Luke, the 23rd chapter. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One was on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You know, we speak a lot of Jesus being Lord of Lords, King of Kings. We talk about him being Son of David. How did all this come about? How did this prophecy first develop? And what does it mean for us personally? What does it mean to have the reign of Christ? Well, at the time of Jeremiah the prophet, Jerusalem was going downhill. After the great King David and his son Solomon ruled, there had been a civil war, and the nation had been divided into two new kingdoms. There was the kingdom of Judah in the south, including Jerusalem and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And there was the kingdom of Israel in the north, composed of the northern ten tribes. Judah had long been the more stable of the two, with the northern kingdom of Israel more prone to follow other gods. Part of the northern kingdom was destroyed in 732 B.C., and many people were deported. 
Eventually, the remainder of the kingdom, 12 years later, it was destroyed by Sargon II of Assyria. He deported over 27,000 inhabitants to Mesopotamia. That's the area we call Iraq today. And this double set of deportations gave rise to the concept of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Additionally, many of the northerners moved down to the south to settle in Judah, in particular in the city of Jerusalem, which massively increased the population of the city. It may have quintupled during those years. Then people from other parts of the Assyrian Empire were brought in to settle in that area of the northern kingdom where they eventually merged with the remaining Israelites became known as Samaritans who kept their sort of Jewish religion alive but there were enough changes that the people of Jerusalem at the time of Christ still looked down their noses at them. Judah continued another 130 years and then was conquered in its turn by the Babylonians when Jeremiah the prophet was in his late middle ages in 586 BC. Once again large numbers of people were deported to the east, this time many nobles. They were all sent to Babylon. Jeremiah was sent by God during the time there to try to turn the people of Jerusalem back to God. But it was all in vain. The rulers of Jerusalem wouldn't listen to him. So Jeremiah preached this passage against the rulers who were leading Jerusalem, the ones that were leading them to moral and physical destruction. It may have, may have some things to tell us today. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you've scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you've done, declares the Lord. God and Jeremiah blamed the rulers of Jerusalem for the great deportations. And so God declared that he'd had enough. He would recover things by himself. God said, I myself will gather the remnants of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they'll be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. It took 70 years but God appointed Ezra and Nehemiah to lead people back from Babylon to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to reestablish the kingdom of Judah at the holy city. But God also gave Jeremiah a message for even farther in the future, a time over 500 years in the future. The days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, the Lord said, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. The branch of David, part of the, his family tree, that king was Jesus. But the kingdom of Jesus was to be different from the kingdoms in the past. Instead of a kingdom ruled by armies and defined by geography, the kingdom would be defined by individual hearts 
and ruled by the allegiance of individual people to their ruler Jesus, wherever they lived. And so in the heart of the Roman Empire, an empire that had been established by weapons and force of soldiers, a new empire began, not with an act of rebellion, but with an act of submission. It didn't begin with a great battle between soldiers led by a great military leader, but with the death of the founder, who was executed by the other side in a most horrible way. The kingdom began the day that Jesus was executed on the cross at Golgotha, the place of the skull. skull. Luke tells us that when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. You notice Jesus did not yell insults at his enemies, but he prayed to God that they would be forgiven. We should do likewise. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. His enemies did not even leave him his clothing. But we today often insist on having multiple pairs of clothing, don't we? Multiple sets. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. Those watching did not realize that by saying this they were condemning themselves. For they had recognized his healing power, the healing power Jesus had shown, even the ability to raise others from the dead, to save others. Yet they would not believe him that he was the chosen one. They, they were like people who moved the goalposts continually, asking for further proofs and further proofs and further proofs of who he was. But he refused to play the game. And the soldiers, they came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're king of the Jews, save yourself. The Roman soldiers, though, they could be forgiven for their unbelief. For unlike the local rulers, they did not understand the scripture who predicted Jesus' arrival. They did not mock him. The soldiers did not mock him because he was the leader of a movement. They mocked him because he was Jewish. And they despised all Jews. There was a written notice put above him that read, This is the king of the Jews. And this sign was written by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, expressly for the purpose, once again, not making fun of Jesus, but to taunt all the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders. Pilate wanted to show the Jews that he was more powerful even than the one who many thought had claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Jesus never made that particular claim. His claim was simply to be a king, but not of this world. Jesus had said to Pilate, as reported by the Apostle John, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You know, if Pilate had pursued the questioning, he might have found that Jesus was claiming to be king of all people and angels alike. King not only of the Jews, but of all the, of all the Romans too. He wasn't merely the king of the Jews, but he was the king of all nations. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. It was the sort of thing that a man angry at being caught and punished for his wrongdoing would say and do. When they made 
poor choices in life and had things happen because of it. We all know people who are like this, who get angry when they make the wrong choices. Maybe we do it ourselves. Focused on his own problems, the man lashed out at everyone. Have you ever done that? But the other criminal rebuked him. Said, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly, but, you know, we're, we're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. So finally, we've come to an honest man, a man who understands his own sins and also recognizes the justice and the lack of sin on Jesus' part and the injustice that was there. Had he heard of Jesus? Had he seen Jesus in action, healing people, speaking the truth, helping other people? We'll never know in this world. But the man's honesty and recognition and wisdom, the wisdom that he needed help, bore eternal fruit for him. The second man said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the second man, you see, believed. All people are different. But this man believed that Jesus was truly the Lord and worthy to be followed. He believed that Jesus had the power to reach beyond the grave to which all three men were headed. The grave to which every person is headed. And the man believed that Jesus would still have the power in the life to come where Jesus would rule a kingdom. The man's faith was not misplaced. Jesus answered him and said, Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The second man was headed to be with Jesus eternally. Jesus had made him a promise, and we know that Jesus keeps his promises. And that's one reason why Jesus is worthy to be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Much is made of the reign of Jesus. Much has been written and spoken of the future when Jesus will be worshipped by all of, as King of kings and Lord of lords. Much has been spoken of the second coming of Jesus when he returns in the air with his great army to take possession of the earth. The angels all arrive. His people come to his kingdom. It's a huge army swooping down from the atmosphere, destroying all who oppose their leader. And you know it's the desire of most people to see their team win and to win big. It's our desire to swamp the defenders with a D-Day moment, a D-Day invasion. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers, tens of thousands of airplanes, dozens of battleships firing huge destructive rounds at a terribly outnumbered group of evil defenders. We want to also see WVU beat Clemson or Georgia by a score of 70 to nothing. We want them to be swamped. We want to see our political team beat the hated enemy by taking over Congress and the presidency with a decisive win. We want to win the lottery, taking home a billion dollars in an evening. But that's not how God has created this world. We bring home enough money to pay our bills most of the time, if we're careful what we spend. We walk or drive home. Others may fly their private jets, but we walk or drive home, and over 30 years, we eventually pay off our home. It takes time. 
God has made it take time. It takes us time to learn our lessons. WVU wins some games easily, others are more difficult, and in some seasons, like this one, we get walloped. But imagine how dull it would be if we were like Clemson a couple years back where we win every game in a blowout. In our politics, neither side is ever truly defeated, but regroups and comes back for another election two years later. Usually the victories are measured by just a couple of percentage points. Even after those few times that there's landslides, the losers are back again a couple of years later. And slowly, slowly, the attitudes of people change. And that's when policies begin to change. It changes when attitudes change first. And the politicians follow along. And in wars... The D-Day invasion victories, they're few and far between. Nothing much is written about the Dieppe invasion. You may never have heard about it. There were a couple of Canadian divisions almost destroyed by German defenders earlier in World War II when they tried to invade northern France. Nothing's written about Operation Sea Line much, where the Germans planned to invade England because it never happened. They saw the handwriting on the wall there. We write about the great victories. We don't write much about the weeks and the months and the years where the soldiers sat in foxholes and trenches shooting at barely seen enemies who dropped mortar shells, three mortar shells every night on those same foxholes. Victories, you see, are won by months of single rifle shots, wearing down the enemy, building up our strength, followed by a single week when the tanks roll, and that's what gets written about in the history books. And so it is with the kingdom of Christ. For Jesus wants to change our world. He could have returned with overwhelming angel armies at any point, but in his wisdom he's decided that, the, that he does not want to rule by fear and by force of arms. He wants to rule a kingdom of people who love him that understand that he is the best choice of king by far. A group of people who know they can't make better decisions and will not gripe about everything he does, for that's what leads to rebellion and bloodshed. Jesus wants a permanent kingdom, a good, peaceful kingdom, and that means that the war will not be fought with a great invading army, but instead will be fought with men and women and children speaking gently, lovingly to other men, women, and children. And even before we speak to others, the war must be fought within our own lives. Have you ever seen on TV Marie Kondo? She's a nice girl from Japan. She's developed a business. Here's what she does. If you call her up, she says, I'll come over to your house on Tuesday. And when she comes over on Tuesday, what she, she will do is she will go in there and she will say, where's your worst, where is your worst room? She goes into the room, and of course you're embarrassed because you know how, how your worst room looks, right? Everybody have a worst room in their house? Okay, she goes in there and she says, okay, let's start moving everything into a pile. You pick up this, you put it there. And I want you to ask a question. Does it bring you joy today? 
I know it brought you joy when you bought it, but does it bring you joy today? And if it doesn't bring you joy today, put it in the big pile. If it does bring you joy, put it here and we'll put it back in the closet. And you do that for hours, maybe even days. And she folds your socks nice and pretty where they fit in the drawers and everything. And by the end of the thing, your house is beautiful because everything has been put away. Now, two-thirds of what you touched is now in the yard waiting for the garbage. Because, and she had you touch everything. You have a third of the appliances you used to have. You don't have all those keepsakes. Just a few. They're all gone. Everything's been thrown away. But your house looks great. Well, I want you to imagine that your life is a great big mansion with 20 rooms. When we first encounter Jesus, we kind of may have a bit of discussion with him in the front yard outside the house. We recognize he's different from us, and we recognize that he wants to be our Lord and Master, and he wants to do more to us than Marie Kondo would ever do. So initially, we're very reluctant to even let him on the porch. We keep our arms crossed, and we keep Jesus off the porch and outside the walls of our mansion because we know he wants to change things. But after some discussion, after the Holy Spirit and the Scripture, which is the Word of God, works on us for a while, we let Jesus onto the front porch, the front porch of our life's mansion, and we sit there for a while talking with him. That's a safe place for us because we think he doesn't know about the messes in the front hallway, the piles of dirty dishes in the sink, and the mold on the walls of our life's mansion. And we all have messes in our lives. And then after a while, we decide that maybe, maybe Jesus might be able to help us clean up that front hallway. And so we let him in just to the front hallway, and it is painful because he throws away far more things than Marie Kondo ever would. He tells us to get rid of our bad habits and that particular sin. And you know that's exactly what we thought that he was going to do. And that's why we kept him on the front porch for so long. But we let him into the front hall because we realized we could not deal with the mess in that hallway any longer. And so with his help, we begin to clean it up. And when we let Jesus into our lives, our lives begin to improve. And then he says something to us, what is that awful smell? I think it's coming from the kitchen, the kitchen of our lives. And we realize that we have all these dirty dishes in there that we stacked up over the years and the decades, the petrified problems we never resolved from when we were teenagers, the mess that's on the floor from high school, the pile of pots and pans in the corner from our first job, and the stacks of half-empty jars of food from our bad relationships. And it takes a while, maybe even years, but we eventually let Jesus come into that kitchen of our life mansion, and the two of us begin to work on cleaning up that room. And every so often, 
Because it's very difficult, we just break down because the cleanup job is so overwhelming. And so we get a box of chocolate ice cream from our life's freezer and we go and sit and eat it in the corner. And then we throw the box of the empty box onto one of those piles that we had been working on. And Jesus just looks at us with understanding eyes and says, okay, once more, did we really make any progress with that today? And the two of us go back to work. And so through the years and decades of our lives, we work with Jesus, gradually going through every room in our life home, cleaning and sorting and filing and dusting. It seems like there's always rooms you don't want to let Jesus into, for there are always rooms in which we stash all that extra junk that was sitting on the couch when company rang the doorbell. There are always rooms that are simply not suitable for company. Rooms that are always a mess because that's where we put the things we can't deal with today. And then someone opens up the door to that room and we're embarrassed, we break down. And so it is with Jesus. But he just smiles and says, I knew that mess was there anyway. I just needed you to open up the door to that room so we could work on it together. But if we're going to let him rule our lives, if we really want to make him our Lord, we're going to have to eventually let him into every room in our lives. For with every room we allow him to clean up, we're giving him a crown which signifies that he now rules over that part of our life mansion. One crown for our relationships room, another crown for our habits room, another crown for how, the, how disciplined we are room, sometimes that's hard to get to, and another crown when we let him control our leisure time. Somewhere along the way, though, an amazing thing happens. Our shame about the rooms of our lives turns to pride. We begin to have other guests over and we show them the before and after pictures of those rooms in our lives, before Jesus and after Jesus' help. And we tell other people about the great difference that Jesus has made. And they ask for his, his number. And we take them to church to introduce them to him. Everybody starts with messes. And the messes pile up and get worse and worse unless we let Jesus into that room of our life to show us how to clean up those messes of bad habits, of anger, selfishness, hatred, fear. And if we really focus upon understanding what Jesus is trying to teach us, what Scripture says, and if we listen to the Holy Spirit, then our rooms will begin to glow and glisten with love and joy and they'll smell sweetly of peace and patience. And our, our visitors will remark about the beautiful decorations of kindness and generosity and gentleness. And the floors of our rooms will be solid because they're made of faithfulness and self-control. If those sound like the fruits of the Spirit, that's because that's what comes from learning about Jesus, studying Scripture, listening to the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when we let Jesus fully rule over our life. We can't, we can't find those fruits of the Spirit by ourselves. Jesus has to help us clean up our rooms and decorate them 
with those fruits to find them. Let them into your life's mansion by joining us at Bible study on Wednesday nights or at Help and Hope, our parents and loved ones support group on Monday evenings or simply start here on Sunday mornings at 10.30 or maybe even at 9.30 with Sunday school. For if the worldwide reign of Christ as King of Kings is going to happen, each of us needs to first let Jesus rule over our lives, every room of our life mansion, gradually inviting him deeper and deeper into our lives until the last mess is cleaned up, the last bit of dust has been swept out of our house, and the last cobweb has been cleared from the chandeliers in the house. For you know, no light can glow brightly when it's covered in, in grime and dust and cobwebs, or when it's hidden under bushel baskets of sin. Support the reign, the coming reign of Christ the King, and start with your own life, giving him crowns with each part of your life you turn over to him to clean and repair and to set straight. Crown him with many crowns. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Bowley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the Give tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.